Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Every Monday night, we're live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, we'll talk to UC Berkeley professor Tony Platt about his new book, The Scandal of Cal. He examines the progressive university's troubled history of land grabs and racism. We'll also hear from business journalist Sarah Clearman about how San Francisco might be on the right path to permitting more housing and streamlining that process. And are you one of the 18 million people suffering from long COVID? Dr. Carla Kwan will join us to offer answers. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Later on in the hour, we'll talk to Professor Tony Platt about his newest book, The Scandal of Cal, which recounts a long history of land grabs and regressive policies at this prestigious university. We'll also talk to Dr. Carla Kwan. She shares hopeful news about treatments for people suffering from long COVID. But first, housing, or more accurately, the lack thereof. It's a constant headline here in the Bay Area, but is there hope? San Francisco recently got the all clear from the State Oversight Board after making recommended changes to its residential permitting laws. Joining us tonight to help us understand these changes and what comes next is Sarah Clearman, a reporter with the San Francisco Business Journal. Welcome to State of the Bay, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before the show started, we were talking about housing, and we were both saying, like, let's try not to make it dry and boring. But I don't think housing is ever boring in San Francisco. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Well, you wrote a recent article explaining that state officials gave San Francisco this all clear for making recommended changes to the housing laws. Before we get into the details, why is San Francisco even wrangling with the state about permits for residential housing. Definitely. Um, So San Francisco, the state has discovered, has one of the longest, or actually I rather should say the longest timeline for approving and building new housing in the entire state. Um, So that's what primarily caught the state's attention, that it takes longer here than anywhere else to get planning approvals and to get building permits. So on top of that, San Francisco also has the steepest assignment of RENA units. And those are units that the state wants to see San Francisco plan for and ideally build over the next eight years. So the state is essentially saying it takes so long to build new housing in San Francisco. And if you continue at this cadence, you're not going to meet the goal that we set for you. And we don't like that. Mm. Are there other cities under this kind of scrutiny by the State Oversight Board, or is San Francisco alone in this? Right now, San Francisco is alone. Um, What's going on with this all-clear drama is sort of the product of this unprecedented investigation into how housing gets produced in San Francisco. So this is first of its kind, although the state has said that if it deems it necessary to look into you know, another jurisdiction in the future, it may do so. Mm -hmm. And we've done shows about this. And we actually reported on the housing community um, department's investigation into San Francisco. And as you noted, it takes a long time to get through the permitting process. Um, And in certain cases, like how fast you get through the process can kind of depend on which planners and which people overseeing Mm -hmm. your um, requests are, who the people are. Isn't that right? I don't have so much insight into how it varies staff to staff, but I do think that there is 
sort of like a broader uncertainty that developers can face when they deal with San Francisco, just because there are so many things that can tie up um, like a, a residential project here. Mm-hmm. And what did the the state want San Francisco to do? Like what was its main, um, the thrust of its recommendations? It kind of comes back to what we were just talking about, the theme of like inconsistency and uncertainty. So there were lots of recommendations that the state laid out, but I would say the overall theme is like basically creating some objectivity and um, certainty for these developers. Like the state essentially found that San Francisco, its processes are are problematic to the point that it's impeding housing Mm -hmm. production here. So they were like, you got to get back on your game and and change that. Yeah. And it's not just NIMBYs, right? I mean, who don't want housing. Um, It really is the way that department is operating, the way city government is working. It's a super complex thing. And so there are just so many steps during which like a project can get tied up. And it's not always as simple as like, ooh, somebody doesn't want this housing project. It's Mm -hmm. oftentimes just like, it's so complex and people get like snagged on one step of the process or the other and that can delay a project like indefinitely. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading some very frustrated homeowners who are waiting months to just get a simple renovation done. Um, So let's talk about what happened between November and January. Can you walk us through how the city responded to this report? Yes, so they don't have much choice. They (laughs) Basically, the state said like, You've got all these problems with your processes. Here is a list of stuff that you have to do to fix that, basically. And they handed them like 18 action items, we'll call them. So the city now, the ball is kind of in the city's court. Um, And the first of these action items, like the first seven of the 18, were due at the end of November. So San Francisco is sort of like hustling to meet those deadlines. But by the time that deadline did roll around, the city had only managed to accomplish three of those seven. Um, That's not very um, confidence inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) So it was interesting because the four that they didn't manage to accomplish on time were all kind of tied to this one piece of legislation that um, Mayor Breed had actually authored earlier in 2023. Um, It was called the Constraints Reduction Ordinance. And she had authored this legislation with the intent of like making it easier to get housing through the whole process here. Mm -hmm. Um, And the state really took a liking to that piece Mm. of legislation and said, like, we'd like you to pass this as part of the kind of like list of things you've got to do. And so the board was supposed to do that by the end of November, but did not. Mm -hmm. Um, And the state said, like, all right, you've got 30 days to like really get it in gear and and pass this ordinance and get those four items like check, check, check. Um, And so by early December, the Board of Supervisors is like springing into action. They're going to pass this ordinance. But they were talking about passing the ordinance with some changes, primarily because they were concerned about like things like historic preservation and tenants' rights, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, those are, I think, worthy causes. Anybody could probably agree with that. But the state was concerned that those changes were going to impede the ordinance's intended effect, which is to make it built like easier to get new housing through the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was like come back and forth there, some tension, a lot of dialogue between the state and the city, as I think there's been like this whole time. Um, And ultimately, the Board of Supervisors in December did pass an amended version of this legislation. But the state came back like a week later and said, "Okay, this looks good. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, that was like a really big step for San Francisco to be back in the state's good graces. And then finally, earlier this month, like mid-January, they sent San Francisco the letter saying, you're good. We won't punish you. Is the Board of Supervisors happy? I mean, everybody's their individual supervisors. Mm -hmm. But just by and large, are people okay with this kind of state supervision? sort of looking at it and saying, like, this is the help we needed? Or was it, get out of our beeswax? 
I think there's a spectrum. Um, certainly, I think some people have like real concerns that these the like housing production goals are going to be like sort of a tide that washes over like preservation and affordability and like neighborhood character and all these things that like, you know, these are legitimate concerns that people have. But on the other hand, right, we like have this really crushing and pressing housing shortage. Um, and so there's kind of like a range of opinions, I think, mm-hmm. on the board. Mm-hmm. So we got this all clear. And does this mean that the state is no longer going to be supervising San Francisco in this way? So the state, I th- I feel like, is always keeping its eye on San Francisco <laughs> like at all times <laughs> these days. Um, but actually, like this first tranche of items that came due in November is like the first piece of these that's this like rolling list of items essentially that San Francisco has to complete. And so there were additional items that needed to be taken care of this month that the city completed. Um, there's some that need to be done at like the six month mark, which is in the spring, and then some that need to be done at the year mark, which is I think October of next year. So mm-hmm. they've they've kind of got to keep the ball rolling as it comes to meeting the state's demands. Is there a point person on the city side that is responsible for this? Does it I mean, I guess the buck stops with Mayor Breed, but <laughs> is there somebody else who trying to make sure that we're compliant? I would say the the planning department, I mean, the like the heads of that department and their staff are working to like implement the, the required changes because a lot of it has to do with like practice, the way that the city does things. Um, but there's also policy changes that need to be made. So the Board of Supervisors, for example, played a really big role in helping San Francisco cross the finish line this last time. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a range of people that have to be kind of on point to... Mm. To manage this, and how does the mayor's race impact any of this? Are people? I mean, Mayor Breed has been touting on on the campaign trail of how she's trying to get less bureaucracy mm. um, through lots of things for running businesses, for small businesses, for housing. Uh, do you see that the mayor's race might help move the ball forward? That's a great question. I think that this sort of review and investigation exists independently of politics because, like I said, the state isn't leaving that much wiggle room. Like. If we were to get a, a mayor or a mayoral candidate who said, like, you know, I'm sick of the state's intervention mm-hmm. and it's all about local control, that would place San Francisco in, like, a really vulnerable position that I think people on both sides of the aisle, wherever that aisle is, could agree, <laughs> like, that would be a negative thing. Right, right. Well, California has said that San Francisco needs to approve 82,000 new housing units by 2031, which seems like a lifetime away, yeah. but is actually not that far away. Yeah. Um, and, and that comes out to uh, 28 houses a day yeah. between now and then. Um, and as of July 2023, I think we're approving maybe 10 new residences hmm. a day. How are we going to get to this goal? I mean, is that goal just pie in the sky? Um, you know, it seems like we have a lot of catching up to do. That is a really ridiculous, like just unfathomably high amount of house. I think we've never actually produced that that rate of housing as a city. Um, but it's interesting, like we're kind of in a new era, I would say, of housing production, like the the number and the quality of state laws that have passed to try and open the doors for new residential production, like over the last five, ten-ish years, I think that's expected to have, you know, as significant of an impact as as legislation can have. Um, certainly, like this review is supposed to make it easier to get, like it, it's supposed to award some certainty to the folks that are proposing these new housing units and to the projects themselves. Um, so I think that will play a, like a, a key role. As for actually getting these units built, I mean, that's – it's sort of a tough time right now for new construction. Mm-hmm. A lot of developers are saying like between the high interest rates and the rising cost of construction materials and just 
all the craziness that's been the last four years that it's like very, very difficult to make the math work. Like mm-hmm. the money behind it is mm-hmm. is challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like the nature of cycles. And a lot of developers that I speak to say that they've seen this like time and time again. And mm-hmm. we're just sort of, you know, it's it's cyclical. You know, speaking of the developers, we've talked a lot about the planning department and the board. Are the developers looking in particular areas to build this housing? Mm. I mean, when I think about the city, you know, out in the avenues, it's mm. pretty much two-story residential. Yeah. I mean, where where's 82,000 new units going to go? Totally. It's interesting you mentioned the avenues because the, the state has said that the west side of San Francisco needs to kind of like pull its weight more, that mm-hmm. there is a lot of low-density de- residential there and that there should be there, – there's a kind of like an effort as part of this broader – housing production overhaul to rezone that area to accommodate more houses. So but I certainly think that it is expected that we'd see those neighborhoods kind of pull their fair share, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, and what are you looking for uh, as to the story? What do you think, what are the stories that you're looking out for next? I'm certainly keeping an eye on how the city is managing these rolling deadlines um, because I feel like this November one sort of came up suddenly and it was like, oh my gosh, they're, they could be, you know, in trouble. Um, it'd be very interesting to see how this actually works out in on you know in the real world like mm-hmm. whether this kind of sparks any sort of I don't know, reignition of the the residential pipeline in San Francisco, I think will be really interesting. Yeah, something to get us out of the doom loop. Well, I mean, Sarah, thank you for explaining this to us. And for our listeners, it certainly was not boring. Um, That was Sarah Clearman. She's a reporter with the San Francisco Business Journal telling us what's happening next in the housing. Sarah, I hope you come back to State of the Bay. Thanks for having me. Right. Coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to Berkeley professor Tony Platt, who will share some disturbing findings about the academic institution that he calls home. That's right after. For the break, stay with us. Tuned in to Cross Currents tomorrow morning at 11. For people inside prison, the decision to reject violence can be a life-changing one. People get shot, people get stabbed, and so living in this environment, it's almost like a thing of normalcy. New episode on Tough Choices from the team at Uncuffed. That's tomorrow morning at 11 on Cross Currents from KALW News. On the next Fresh Air, how the battle over immigration is continuing in Congress and the presidential campaign, and how today's immigration crisis is in part the result of U.S. support of brutal dictatorships in Central and South America during the Cold War. We talk with New Yorker staff writer Jonathan Blitzer about his new book, Join us tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for Fresh Air with Terry Groves here on 91.7 KALW San Francisco. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. We want you to be part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking to Professor Tony Platt about his latest book, The Scandal of Cal. In it, Platt offers a different perspective on the famously progressive university. So if you're a Cal student or an alum, I'm wondering, did the university live up to its progressive values and what attracted you to the school in the first place? Give us a call, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or find us on social media or email us at stateofthebay at org. I'll give out that number a little bit later again. 
But I am pleased to have Professor Tony Platt here. He's a graduate of Cal and a longtime resident of Berkeley. He's also the author of 12 books on race, inequality, social justice, and American history, and is currently a distinguished affiliated scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at UC Berkeley. In his latest book, The Scandal of Cal, Land Grabs, White Supremacy, and Miseducation at UC Berkeley, Platt offers a deep dive into the history of Cal, a history that few people talk about. Welcome to State of the Bay, Professor Tony Platt. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Well, the book was fascinating, but I wanted to start. You were somebody who went to Cal. You received your PhD there, and you came to Cal in the 1960s. What attracted you to the school, and what were your hopes for your academic journey there? Um, I'd like to be able to reflect and say that I made a deliberate decision when I was 20, 21, to leave England and come to Berkeley to, uh, because of its reputation. But in fact, um, somebody advised me that this would be a good place to study and learn about criminology, which I was interested in then. Uh, it was also the Bay Area was the place of the beat movement that I was closely following in England. And also, it was further away from England than the East Coast. <laughs> Were you looking for better weather? <laughs> uh, weather, any kind of weather would have been better than the one I was used to in Manchester, England. <laughs> um, and so when you started the journey of writing this book, um, did, it, did you always intend to write a critical history of Berkeley? No, I didn't, I didn't even intend to write a book. So this project started off as a political activist project about five years ago. Uh, I helped to co-found an organization called the Truth and Justice Project on the Berkeley campus, working with a small number of Native American faculty and staff and some law students and other students, trying to understand and do something about the fact that Berkeley had accumulated ten to 15,000 human remains of Native ancestors and hundreds of thousands of uh, plundered artifacts and had refused to comply with federal legislation that was passed in 1990. So I I was the research wing of this uh, project and worked with students and did my own research trying to understand, was this a one-off, was this exceptional, or was there a deeper set of issues and problems here? And then in the course of doing that and learning more and deepening my own knowledge and discovering my own ignorance, uh, it became a book. I mean, this I, this concept that um, Berkeley holds these human remains, um, tell me a little bit more about that. So um, Berkeley, the University of California, followed the example of many East Coast universities like Harvard and Yale and the Smithsonian and European museums uh, that were involved in the business of plundering human remains and artifacts uh, all over the world. And in fact, uh, Berkeley that was created in the 1860s opened in the 1870s. Then in the 1890s, one of its first major projects uh, funded by Phoebe Hurst was to send an archaeological expedition to Egypt and Peru and Mexico to dig up human remains, to acquire artifacts and to bring them back. And that this would be a mark of Berkeley becoming, or Cal as it's sometimes called, becoming a, a serious university in competition with um, high-level universities, elite universities on the East Coast. So from the very early days, um, this was a, a big part of what the university stood for. And um, they were trying to play catch-up with the Smithsonian and catch-up with the British Museum. This was a, both a popular recreational hobby for a lot of people, 
uh, late 19th, early part of the 20th century, first part of the 20th century, in fact. And it's also, it was a major academic uh, intellectual enterprise that many universities practiced. Yeah, it was like a very Indiana Jones thing. And your book has a picture of Phoebe Hurst, one of the original major donors to the school, you know, perched on a, I think, a camel, camel. in front of the pyramids in her 19th century garb. And, you know, I, my first thought when I looked at it is like, that must have been very hot. My second, my second thought was, I mean, you know, here are these people from the United States coming over and taking the patrimony of a country, you know, for what purpose? And I, I was curious about that. Why was it so important to study the anthropology of other cultures in this particular way? I mean, you mentioned trying to keep up with the Harvards and the Yales, but I mean, what's the, what's the nugget of what are they trying to discern? Well, the, there was a scientific and academic justification for this that all universities and institutions expressed, and it was about studying uh, human remains, particularly crania, in order to figure out what were the racial differences, mm. particularly between the superiority of European civilizations and the, quote, inferiority of indigenous people. So uh, they, they were very interested in, in and linking biology with racial difference and trying to figure that out and study that. So there's a lot of that. The, the rationalization for, for the practice then was often a, a scientific rationale. And I used to think that that's what motivated uh, places like Berkeley originally to engage in this uh, frenzy of collecting. But um, in this book and doing the research, I realized that almost no science took place, whether it was a racist science or otherwise. There was no science that took place. It just became a a process of accumulation. And in fact, the the chapter where I talk about this, I call it hoarding, has more in in common with hoarding than it does with with science. And so why were these institutions hoarding and, and doing this? I think it has a lot to do with the psychology of what it means to possess the land, possess a people, uh, possess artifacts and and people's remains that have status in the world. And and as I said before, uh, Berkeley was following the example of other institutions and was very proud of what they did. It wasn't something that they tiptoed around in the dark and did secretly. They were digging up graves. They were plundering graves. They were accumulating uh, artifacts from graves for, for decades. And then they were publicizing this until this legislation of 1990 Berkeley and other institutions were were proud of this and showed off how much stuff they had. So, like any hoarder, you know, you want to you want to show off. You want to show off how many human remains you have. So, uh, I think it had a lot to do with accumulation and possession rather than any kind of uh, mystique of science. Mm. Well, you write that you you had a very chance discovery in the Bancroft Library, which is the main research library at the institution, and you found a short handwritten note that kind of got your intellectual juices flowing. What was in the note? Well, what was in the note? This was um, an an archaeological report which they were about to publish, and somebody had scribbled a note in pencil on the report, clearly wanting to get guidance from other people. And the note said, uh, should we include this site in our final report? And by this site, and they specified the site, they, they were talking about a very particular place on the Berkeley campus where in the 1900s they had uh, dug up the ground in order to um, increase the size and buildings of the university that was developing very rapidly then, and that they dug up human remains and artifacts in that site uh, from a shell mound on the campus. 
And the report was um, a massive report on all the shell mounds from all around the Bay Area. We're talking about hundreds of them. But the one that they left out was the one on the Berkeley campus. Uh, They didn't publicize that. So just using that handwritten note became like a detective project. I started researching in internal archives. I started looking at local newspapers. And I found that the university was not only digging up human remains, they were digging up artifacts that uh, students and faculty were collecting on what is now the campus and that the Smithsonian came out because they were so impressed by what Berkeley was doing. Mm. Um, So um, that was the evidence for what we already knew, that the actual campus had been a site of significant Ohlone settlements for thousands of years. But also this was the evidence that the university knew about this and kept quiet about it. Mm. And for listeners who don't know what a shell mound is, can you describe that? A shell mound is a, is a place where uh, people live and they put things like um, – it's, it's often called a shell mound because it has to do with the shellfish that uh, come out of the bay and that people then uh, use it to um, you know, bury garbage and bury things and so on. But, but the shell mounds is larger than that. It's also a living space. And it's also a place where people bury their dead because for a long time, uh, this is true of communities throughout the world. This is not just uh, indigenous communities in California, that people lived and died in the same place and that people wanted to protect the graves and protect the cemeteries and protect the importance of of the ancestors. So often where people lived, uh, you'll also find uh, the cemeteries. And that's why the archaeologists and anthropologists knew that. And they went out and wherever they found these mounds and had evidence of people living there, they would start digging to to get at the human remains, to get into the burials, to get into the artifacts. Mm. Well, this is a history of Berkeley that you say is not well known or really not thought of. And I mean, there's another picture in the book, which is a good one, and people should pick it up at an independent bookstore. Um, but it's a picture of, of young co- female college students, you know, lounging at the pool. And you write in this, in the caption, it's like, co-eds lounging at the pool. Beneath them are 10,000 human remains, right? I mean, this pool is right above wherever Berkeley was holding these things. So it was almost out. It wasn't hidden so much as it was out in, it was out in the open, but people didn't seem to care. Um, it was totally out. In fact, the, that photograph of the, uh, the bathing bells around the pool is uh, that appeared in Life magazine in 1948. They did a whole spread on the University of California, all the campuses, talking about it as the most important public university in the, in the country, if not in the world. And they invited the different universities then to provide uh, images and to tell photographers where to go. So one photograph, which I didn't publish because it's uh, unethical to do so, was a full-page photograph of people working in the lab, the anthropology lab, uh, working on human remains and putting them in boxes. And that's where I learned that when um, Berkeley anthropologists uh, brought them back to the university, they then broke up the human remains into different body parts. It's, it's, mm. it's pretty horrific to read about this and to see it um, and to learn what happened. Because, so that you, then you have a, a box of crania and you have boxes of arms and boxes of legs and so on. So that the, the skeleton, skeleton, skeletons get broken up uh, the disrespect for the people that were buried just gets compounded. Um, and that was on one page, and then, which I decided uh, not to have that in the book as being disrespectful. But another page was these uh, bathing bells around the pool, which I, I knew at that time was above the place where they stored all the human remains. Mm. So it's the contradiction of showing off 
you know, Berkeley with this uh, pool for women and what a wonderful place it is, and then keeping hidden in that photograph the uh, what's underneath. And in a way, that's sort of the metaphor for the, for Berkeley's history, having sort of a superficial wokeness and social justice uh, rhetoric that uses it for its own narrative and uh, an emphasis on it being a public university, whereas the other stories beneath the surface uh, suggest a very different narrative and history. Well, we're talking to UC Berkeley Distinguished Affiliated Professor Tony Platt, who has a new book. It's called The Scandal of Cal. And in it, Platt offers a very different perspective on the famously progressive university. We'd love to hear from you. Are you a Cal student or alumni? Did the university or is the university living up to its progressive values? And what attracted you to the school? And What are your questions about the school's history? Tony Platt is here to answer all of those things. Give us a call at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can find us on social media or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. So we've been talking about, you know, the university's collections of human remains. I'm curious, what's the status of them right now? The status is that um, the University of California that, quote, owns the human remains, um, and particularly its Berkeley campus that has the largest um, supposed collection of human remains. It's really a unconsecrated mortuary is really what it is. Um, that in 1990, the federal legislation was passed that said that the university had to uh, do an inventory of everything that it had. Any federal institution receiving, uh, any institution receiving federal money that had human remains and cultural artifacts had to do an inventory and publicize it. And when the legislation was passed, it was uh, it was a major success for, for tribes in the country. This was like the civil rights legislation uh, for Native Americans because it dealt with tribe and its tribes and it dealt with ancestors. So it was very significant. And the estimate was it would take five years for institutions to uh, repatriate. Um, so Berkeley is the most recalcitrant in that history. It took the longest to do any inventory. It resisted doing any kind of uh, repatriation in a serious way until about a year ago when due to all kinds of publicity, uh, ProPublica did a very um, deep investigation of Berkeley's malpractice. And then even the U.S. Senate uh, Committee on Indian Affairs did an investigation and sent uh, the university a very critical message saying you need to comply with the law, you're, you're out of compliance, and so on. And that uh, that notice to the university was signed by every member of the Indian Affairs Committee in the Senate. It was probably the only example of Democrats and Republicans working together on any piece of legislation in the last period of time. Uh, so since then, uh, the university has resisted uh, doing anything, but as, big, as a result of this pressure, also coming from the legislature, the governor's office, tribes that are very organized and very active around these things, Berkeley has finally now begun to respond. It's closed down the Hearst Museum, which uh, keeps these uh, human remains, and it's begun to at least comply with the aspect of an, of an inventory um, by doing that. But I don't think this can be implemented um, just by doing this. Uh, most Bay Area tribes don't have land and not federally recognized. And it also takes uh, a lot of money and resources to go through the repatriation process and to look after the human remains and to give them a, a dignified reburial and take care of them and so on. If need be, to um, to get rid of the uh, the pollution from chemicals that they've been kept in. It's, it's mm-hmm. a fairly major 
psychological, social, economic job. So I think the university needs to be providing land for reburials. The university is one of the biggest landowners in, in California, and the university needs to provide some kind of reparations to tribes so that they can take care of people in the proper way. Hmm. Uh, your book isn't just about this, um, how it's handled the human remains. It also basically states that the university has this surface level of progressive values that in its history it hasn't reconciled with. Um, you also talk about the white supremacy that runs through the administ- past administrations um, more towards the early 20th, oh, actually to the mid-20th century. Um, and what, do, I mean, a lot of institutions have been around forever. And, you know, you look at Harvard or Yale or Georgetown and whatnot. I mean, Georgetown recognized it had slaves that were at the core of how it was able to to survive as a university and Harvard the same. You know, universities have been around for a long time. What what's the what's your disappointment with Berkeley in this regard in terms of how it's handled its past? Well, two aspects to that. Um, first of all, uh, Berkeley or Cal is the only major university in the United States that has a history that's so tied to uh, racial exploitation and racist views that has not begun to deal with this history and this legacy. And secondly, um, the Harvards and Yales and Stanfords of the, of the world do not use um, a public relations narrative to describe themselves as being social justice, universities, public universities. You read anything coming out of Berkeley, and this is the language that's used all the time. We're a social justice university. It's almost as though the university created the free speech movement and, and, and supported it as opposed to stopping it actually since the 1930s and disciplining students and expelling students that participated in it. Uh, the university has fought against every major uh, activity uh, by activists on the campus to, to make the university live up to its social justice aspirations. So because it uses that rhetoric, then I think we have to even more closely hold it to that standard. Mm. We have an, e- uh, an email from Gary who writes, I'm a proud Cal grad. I came to Berkeley from Georgia and going to Cal absolutely transformed me. Berkeley taught me to think critically, expanded my worldview. Isn't that enough to expect from four years of college? If the purpose of the university is to educate the students there now, why focus on digging up the past? Well, the past is not past, number one. Um, You see this, the fact that the university still has thousands of human remains, hundreds of thousands of artifacts that were plundered from native tribes, incredibly uh, poor relationships with tribes throughout the state, because we're not just talking about the Bay Area. Uh, University of California was the only campus, uh, Berkeley was the only campus of the University of California really until the 1920s, until UCLA developed. So Berkeley and University of California are one of the same for many decades and are involved in uh, the creation and development of the state of California. And also, I still come across many students who were miseducated in high school and before high school about the role that the missions played, about very demeaning and racist views about the indigenous people that lived here for thousands of years before Berkeley even was imagined. Uh, So it's, it's very much in the present. And uh, I agree that Berkeley has a lot of smart people, smart students, thoughtful students, activist students, a lot of uh, professors and intellectuals on the campus that have done some extraordinary work. 
But what struck me as interesting is that how little work we've done on understanding our own workplace. That is, we study everything but our own university. And this is true of myself. I mean, I've been involved in Berkeley since the 1960s, and I thought I knew the history of the university. I thought I'd, I had a deep understanding of it. But as I started to do this research, I realized how much I didn't know. So I, I think we have an obligation not just to understand the external world, but I think we also have an obligation to know where we're studying, where we're working, where we're living. I think that's also an obligation, too. And Berkeley has failed in that obligation. Mm, I mean, you really, your critique is coming from a, a place of, I'm part of this community and I want it to be better. I mean, I think you you taught there for a time, and I, I love the fact that um, you got a Freedom of Information Act request and you got your FBI file, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess the FBI wasn't too psyched about what you were teaching in the 60s and 70s, which just goes to show how regressive, you know, institutions can be despite sounding progressive. Um, so you're not you're not wanting to burn the place down. You're wanting it to be better. Yeah, I've, I've given most of my life to being in Berkeley. I came in 63. I was 21 years old. Uh, I came for a year and I'm still here, uh, about to be 82 this year. Um, I've lived in Berkeley. I've had children in Berkeley. Children went to the schools here. Uh, my political activist life really took off in Berkeley when I came here in 63 and 64 with the free speech movement. Um, you know, I have a deep um, appreciation of the experiences that I've had here, and I've learned a tremendous amount. And I've loved teaching here and find the, the students open to hearing these stories and, and hearing critical narratives and so on. So, yes, I have a deep appreciation of the place and also uh, a very strong sense of alienation that this doesn't speak to who I am and what I am. And when I walk around the place now knowing what I know, um, I feel very mixed about that experience. Well, you mentioned in the book how Berkeley has tried to rectify in certain ways, you know, the people who helped found it. And it's renamed some of its monuments, some of its institutions. The law school was formerly Bolt and is no longer. Um, but they haven't renamed the Hearst Museum. That that was named after Phoebe Hearst. And we were talking about her as someone who donated a tremendous amount of money to Berkeley in the early days. And it, it brings us to a very contemporary issue, which is the role of wealthy donors and alumni when it mm-hmm. comes to institutions and the sway that they can often have. We're seeing that now with the conversations around Penn and Harvard with their really wealthy donors, unhappy with leadership, unhappy with curriculum. What does that say for for what Berkeley should do when it comes to its own donors? Well, you know, the Chancellor's Office set up a special committee to deal with unnaming buildings, not renaming them, um, uh, but at least we, we got the process started. But in something like five years, we've only had five buildings unnamed. And the committee didn't take on any uh, cases uh, for the whole last year. Um, the kid- committee seems to have sort of dissolved. And more importantly, the, the, to, to get a building unnamed, you, it takes a lot of work. The people that work in that building, the staff, the faculty, the students, they have to research what the issue is. Uh, they have to then uh, write a memo saying why this is uh, incompatible with their values. They then have to get people to sign on and, and do a petition. They then have to have educational events to explain to people why they're doing it. It's, it's a long process, and uh, there's no real financial support for doing that from the university. And uh, when, you do, when that does go through the committee and the committee does agree with the proposal, then it goes up through the higher levels of the administration – uh, the committee doesn't take any initiative on saying, well, what have we missed here? Or what are the other buildings? 
I mean, this whole history and this whole origin story goes back to the Hearst family, the Hearst buildings, the Hearst Street, the Hearst parking lot, the Hearst tennis courts. It's incredible how many things are named after Hearst. And it was the Hearst money um, used by Phoebe Hearst after George Hearst died that made it possible to imagine Berkeley as more than just a local agricultural college and to see it competitive with the the big boys in Europe and on the East Coast. Uh, So... um, I, I supported the naming, unnaming of, of Bolt Hall, and uh, the, but uh, because I think the whole naming issue is an opportunity for people to to meet and talk and discuss and be educated, and that's that's a really important part of it for me, more so than maybe just getting rid of the name. Um, but also, the process of renaming is very important because then you have to talk about who do we want to honor, and Berkeley has honored some of the most despicable people in the history of the state and continues to do that. Um, And so that would open up a really interesting question if we had a debate or conversation on on the campus about who do we honor, who do we respect, who do we want our students to emulate. Uh, But that that conversation is silence, like any major controversial issue at Berkeley tends to go through that process of silencing. Does the fact that it's a public university, I mean, you talked about all this bureaucracy that has to happen for change to take place. Does the fact that it's a public university make it more difficult to affect change? No, I don't think so. I think if Berkeley was really a public university, it would be easier. But Berkeley has a strange, interesting history. It has a a legislative status that makes it different from other universities. It's really a mixture of public and private, and I think it's really a mixture of private and public. It always has been. Uh, In its early days, if Phoebe Hurst hadn't given a fortune to the university and mobilized other members of of the California elite to do likewise and to bring in designers and architects and imagine Berkeley as the Athens of the West, which is the term that they like to use, if that hadn't happened, Berkeley wouldn't have, have risen to prominence. Mm-hmm. So um, right now, um, there is a whole wall of people that have given a million dollars or more outside the Doe Library, the main library on the Berkeley campus. And there's a whole wall there that's empty. There's several walls with names on it, but there's a whole wall empty waiting for your name after you graduate <laughs> and make your first million to donate to the university. So it's not dealt with that issue, and I think it's not dealt with that issue is um, – says a lot about the way the university doesn't really imagine itself as serving the public. Mm. There's a very telling thing, just just quickly, there's a very telling thing which I'd only discovered a a few months ago, is that on every entrance to the university there is a plaque in the ground before you actually walk on the campus. It's a small plaque, looks like it's brass, it's in, in the ground, and when you stop and look at it, it says, the University of California is the property of the regents of the regents of the University of California, and uh, any entrance to the university can be withheld uh, by the regents. It doesn't say this university is the property of the people of California. Mm. It doesn't even say it's the property of the legislature of the California. It says it's the property of, of some of the most powerful people in the state. I think that's that's the message that t- says a lot about how the university imagines itself. Well, it's a fascinating history and one w- well worth diving into. We've been talking to Tony Platt. He's currently a distinguished affiliated scholar at the Center of the for the Study of Law and Society at UC Berkeley. His latest book is The Scandal of Cal, Land Grabs, White Supremacy, and Miseducation at UC Berkeley. If you want to dive even more deeper into it, you can pick that up at a local bookstore. Thank you so much for joining us today on State at the Bay, Tony Platt. 
Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Coming up after the break, my co-host Ethan Elkine will speak to Dr. Carla Kwan about medical treatments for the millions suffering from long COVID. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Tune in to KALW tonight for the broadcast of a town hall on electrification. We partnered with SPUR to bring together the chair of the Bay Area Air Quality Management District and other industry leaders to provide a practical guide to the energy transition. It's going to take the whole community to make this change, and if you can't do it now, someone else can. The Town Hall on Electrification is airing tonight at 7 o'clock, only here on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. On Wednesday, February 14th, join us for a live recording of Philosophy Talk on the Stanford campus. We'll be thinking about mind sharing with Yale psychologist Julian Jara Ettinger. This event is free and open to the public. Everybody welcome. More information at philosophytalk.org. That's Wednesday, February 14th, 7 p.m. at the Stanford Humanities Center. Come share your mind. And your Valentine's Day. With Philosophy Talk. Dr. Carla Kwan is Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Long COVID Optimal Clinic at UCSF. Dr. Kwan, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. So, Dr. Kwan, your recent book is called The Long COVID Solution, a holistic, integrative approach to post-viral recovery. So what were you seeing in your practice during the pandemic that made you want to write this book? So a lot of the referrals that I get to my outpatient clinic is for chronic fatigue syndrome. And during the pandemic, I started getting referrals for long COVID. There's a lot of overlap between chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID. In fact, we think that a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome, it begins after another viral or other infectious injury. So I felt like I had a little bit of an advantage in treating this condition. And there were so many patients who had difficulty obtaining care and many primary care doctors who didn't really have the underlying experience with treating chronic fatigue syndrome. And because I am one person and I can only see so many patients, and of course, there's millions of people experiencing long COVID today. So I just wanted to disseminate that knowledge. There is a way to get better. There are dietary changes you can make. There are supplements that can help you along in your recovery. And it was a way to guide the public towards self-improvement, and also so that they could work with their primary care doctors in improving their nutrients and environments. So I'm wondering how similar long COVID is to chronic fatigue, and in what way are they different? Yeah, um, that's a great question. There's actually a lot of overlap between chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID. The, The three things that are most common in both is obviously fatigue. That's the number one symptom that both people feel. And number two is what we call post-exertional malaise. It's an intolerance to exercise. It's a recurrence or increase in fatigue after exercise. And that is common in both syndromes. And then the third most common is neurologic symptoms. So the cognitive issues, memory loss, poor concentration, having difficulty finding the right word, um, almost like a pseudo-dementia kind of a feeling that a lot of people refer to brain fog. Um, those are really common in both of them. The difference between the two is that long COVID seems to affect many other organ systems. So what we're seeing in long COVID is we're seeing people with clotting disorders. We're seeing people with cardiac disorders and palpitations and dysautonomia, which is when 
your blood pressure just drops the moment you stand up and you have to faint. That is, um, in COVID, it seems to affect more organs than just chronic fatigue syndrome. So that's where they have a lot in common and where they diverge. And how common is long COVID among the people who have gotten COVID, which at this point is pretty much everybody? Uh, and also, is there a certain profile of person? Is it more common among certain demographics than others? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, long COVID is pretty common. Between one quarter and up to one third of people who get COVID can get long COVID. So the impact is pretty high. Um, a couple of things that predispose you, first of all, anyone can get long COVID, even if you're vaccinated, even if you're young, even if you're healthy, but there are some predisposing conditions. Um, recurrence of, of COVID, the more you get COVID, the more possible it is for you at one point to develop long COVID. So it makes a good argument for still wearing masks in closed situations where you have a lot of other people indoors and for maybe avoiding unnecessary exposures. Vaccinations tend to be protective, but not a hundred percent. So that is an argument for keeping up with vaccines, especially before travel, before the holidays, if you're expecting to maybe be in a higher risk situation. Uh, use of Paxlovid is beneficial. It's somewhat protective, but I have patients who did develop it, even though they did get Paxlovid. So it's not a hundred percent. So vaccines, masking, trying not to get repeated courses of COVID are all important. There are chronic conditions that can also predispose you to long COVID. If you have autoimmune disorders, if you have diabetes, basically all of the conditions to, that predispose you to getting more severe COVID will predispose you to getting long COVID. And of course, hospitalization, if you were admitted, if you were in the ICU, your risk of getting long COVID is going to be much higher. So your book goes through a, a whole bunch of treatment protocols, many of which are very practical, diet-related. Can you talk about some of the treatment protocols that you recommend in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So in both my private practice as well as in the book, I talk about the importance of inflammation in causing symptoms of fatigue. So I talk a lot about the anti-inflammatory diet. And this is a diet that avoids processed foods. It avoids dairy. It's a plant-based diet that incorporates a lot of antioxidants and foods from cruciferous family. I talk about which foods to buy organic, which foods you'd want to avoid because they have more agrotoxins in them. Um, getting plenty of omegas from either plant sources and also from either um, fish sources that have EPA or DHA, or if you are vegan, um, getting omegas from a good vegan algae-based oil are really important. And then I talk a lot about the anti-inflammatory supplements to resolve inflammation in the body. So I talk about fish oil, vitamin D, zinc, and I also talk about getting some of those labs to see if you are deficient, because in that case, it's even more important for you to start on these vitamins. I talk about correcting iron deficiency. This is more common in women, but it's actually common in men who have gastrointestinal issues. And uh, I'll talk about things like quercetin. I normally recommend high doses of quercetin, 1,500 milligrams, as it has really powerful anti-inflammatory effects. I talk about melatonin at bedtime, which can help people with sleep, but also with a lot of the brain fog and the neurologic symptoms that they have. And I talk about high doses of antioxidants like NAC, which is known as N-acetylcysteine that helps your body detoxify. And in my book, I also talk about how in addition to inflammation, 
buildup of toxins is really, really a big contributor to the long COVID symptoms. And on the subject of inflammation, because this really jumped out at me in the book as you know, one of the things we really need to get under control, isn't this just more broadly speaking a problem among the developed world? I recall seeing that inflammation is much higher among people, for example, in Western Europe and the United States, less so in other places where also, maybe not coincidentally, it seemed like COVID didn't have quite as damaging effect. So is, if that's true, is there also something wrong with how we're living our lives in uh, more developed uh, countries? That's a great question. There is an argument that there are certain environmental exposures which are more common in the developed world. Some of the things that have come up in the CDC is the universal presence in the human urine of things like organic solvents and phthalates and things that come from agrotoxins like Roundup that are universally present in the urine. And for many years, it was declined that this would have any adverse effect on health. But we're really starting to see that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that these forever chemicals, which never really leave your body, do have an increase in oxidative stress in the body. And then, of course, stress is very inflammatory. So in my personal clinics, I always do talk about the importance of the mind-body connection and stress reduction and mindfulness and meditation or some kind of a mindful practice to be able to cope with the increased stressors of our developed world. Well, so if people abide by the protocols that you talk about in your book, what percentage of them are able to get better? What's the hope for people who are struggling with long COVID? It's actually very good. Uh, I see patients in my clinic and I do follow-ups. And uh, what I tell people is, if you got COVID back in 2020 and you got long COVID then and you still have long COVID, you can recover, but it is going to take a longer time. You have to be more patient with the process. A lot of these inflammatory pathways, they get quite ingrained in the physiology. It's almost as if your body develops these ha bad habits that are a little bit harder to break. So the sooner you get on the protocol, the faster is your recovery, which is why I hope that everybody has a version of this in their back pocket. Uh, and what other research is needed to address long COVID? Uh, we do have currently a recover initiative, and that is a conglomerate of several academic institutions, including UCSF, that is studying patients who have long COVID and they are studying it tissue-wise. They're also enrolling patients in clinical trials with antivirals like Paxlovid or Molnupravir. Um, there's also Iverbradeen for dysautonomia. These are people who get tachycardia when they stand up. So I do think that uh, a lot of that research will be really useful for clinicians on how to manage long COVID. There are uh, researchers at UCSF that think in the future, long COVID will be a, a little bit like management of HIV. You know, you put people on some antivirals and uh, treats their deficiencies and they'll get better. My approach is more integrative. So I usually look for natural methods for people to improve. Uh, so I do think we need a lot more research and I look forward to the research that is upcoming this year. All right, great. Well, Dr. Carla Kwan, Director of the Long COVID Optimal Clinic at UCSF. Thank you so much for coming on. The book, again, is called The Long COVID Solution, A Holistic Integrative Approach to Post-Bio Recovery. Thank you for joining us on State of the Bay. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. 
Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 when we're, talk- we're going to be talking about opioid addiction. For more information about Tony Platt's book, The Scandal of Cal, and Dr. Carla Kwan's book, The Long COVID Solution, visit our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And please remember to subscribe to the State of the Bay podcast wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Katie Colley and Ann Harper. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. A replay of today's Your Call is next. I'm Grace Wan. Good night, and thanks for listening.